People in California are bracing for another rainstorm. It's the latest in a series of downpours that have caused major flooding, killing at least 19 people. It's Monday, January 16th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden's lawyers say they found more classified documents at his Delaware home. Also this hour, people in Selma, Alabama are celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy today. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. And the price of pantry staples is skyrocketing in the Philippines with the price of onions being compared to gold. First it was pork, and then it's fish, and then it's sugar. Uh, now it's onions, and now it looks like it's going to be chicken and egg. In sports, the Celtics and Bruins prepare for afternoon games, a chance of rain and more snow today, temperatures in the mid-30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Search and rescue operations have resumed following the crash of a passenger jet in central Nepal on Sunday. NPR's Lauren Frere reports emergency crews have recovered the bodies of dozens of people who were killed when the plane went down shortly after taking off from Kathmandu. Witnesses say they heard cries for help from the wreckage, but that the flames and smoke were overwhelming. Most of what's left of this plane is in a deep river gorge, and bad weather is hampering efforts to reach it. But officials say they have found the plane's cockpit voice and flight data recorders, and that they appear to be in good condition. The plane took off from Kathmandu on what was supposed to be a half-hour flight to a brand-new airport in Pokhara. That's Nepal's second-largest city, and it's popular with tourists heading to the Annapurna Circuit, a famous Himalayan hiking route. Fifteen foreigners and six children were on the passenger list. It's a day of national mourning in Nepal. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai. Another round of severe storms is forecast to hit parts of California. A series of atmospheric rivers have been slamming the state with heavy rainfall and snow for more than two weeks, causing widespread flooding and damage. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the storms have battered many areas along the coastline. I drove up the coast a bit before sunset and saw quite a bit of localized flooding in low areas, cars, hydroplaning on the road. The beaches up and down the coast here are just trashed with, you know, full trees washed up on the shores or drifting in the waves. I saw that California's Geological Survey says they've now documented more than 400 landslides since the start of the new year. That's NPR's Nathan Rott reporting. More than 8 million people were under flood watches this weekend across much of the state's central coastline. Officials say the storms are blamed for the deaths of at least 19 people since December. Cleanup efforts continue in Selma, Alabama, after a series of tornadoes ripped through the region last week. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports the city will pause its work today to honor the late Martin Luther King Jr. In 1965, King played a pivotal role in the march for voting rights from Selma to Montgomery. King eventually led the march to the Capitol after protesters had been beaten by Alabama state troopers on what was later known as Bloody Sunday. Sadie Moss hopes that storm recovery brings people together in the same way King's message of nonviolence did. Because it takes all of us to make Selma come back together again. She's part of a volunteer group providing food and shelter to storm victims. Organizers will hold an annual march in downtown Selma commemorating King and remembering victims of gun violence. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Selma, Alabama. This is NPR News. 
a 20-foot-high bronze monument depicting Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King, embracing, was recently unveiled in Boston. Mark Hurst from member station GBH has more. The Kings met and fell in love in Boston in the 50s when they were both university students. At the monuments unveiling, their only grandchild, 14-year-old Yolanda King, said it symbolized a beautiful marriage and partnership that changed the world. There is a sense in which we are all children and grandchildren of Martin and Coretta Scott King. Let's make the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday a great day of community service, a day of brotherhood, a day of sisterhood, a day of using your platform for good, a day of love and healing in the spirit of this wonderful monument. For NPR News, I'm Mark Hers in Boston. House Republicans are demanding that the Biden administration turn over all information related to its searches that have uncovered classified documents at President Biden's home and former office. The request comes in the wake of a new disclosure by the White House over the weekend of additional records found at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. The president has continuously pledged to cooperate with both the Justice Department and the special counsel in the review. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today. Wall Street is closed for a national holiday today. Trading resumes on Tuesday. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News. In Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The city of Melrose is avoiding a teacher strike that would have begun tomorrow. School officials agreed to a new contract with the teachers union over the weekend. The deal includes salary increases and more planning time for teachers. Leaders from the union and the city say the contract is a win for both educators and students in Melrose. Workers at a Springfield factory that makes MBTA subway cars say the facility is dysfunctional. Employees at the plant tell the Boston Globe they are overworked. They also say the factory's assembly process is chaotic and poorly documented. The factory is operated by the Chinese manufacturer CRRC. The T has recently criticized the company for missing deadlines and producing cars with serious workmanship issues. Food banks in Massachusetts are bracing for a major reduction in federal food assistance benefits coming in March. Funding for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program will decrease by $95 million a month. Christina Maxwell with the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts says agencies like hers won't be able to make up the difference and give families everything they need. We will do everything we can to help people. We'll be prepared for that. But The Emergency Food Network is not capable of making up the difference in SNAP payments. The federal government increased SNAP payments during the pandemic. Those increases end March 2nd. Many services around Boston are closed today in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That includes all municipal buildings, including City Hall. Parking is free around the city for the day. The T's subway and buses are running on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferry are on a weekday schedule. Trash pickup has been delayed in many areas. It's 7.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. The Bruins host the Philadelphia Flyers at the Garden this afternoon. They'll hit the ice at 1 p.m. The Celtics are in Charlotte again today. The team beat the Hornets Saturday by 16 points. They'll see if they can do it again this afternoon, beginning at 1 p.m. And in your forecast, a chance of rain and snow today around the Boston area. There isn't expected to be much accumulation. We'll have a high in the mid-30s. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 30. Tomorrow, increasingly overcast, but we warm up to near 45. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston. It's 7.08. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden's classified document troubles are piling up. His lawyers announced they had found more files at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, and congressional Republicans pounced. Well, we don't know exactly yet whether they broke the law or not. I will accuse the Biden administration of not being transparent. Why didn't we hear about this on November 2nd when the first batch of classified documents were discovered. That was Republican Congressman James Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee on CNN yesterday. All right. So what does this mean for President Biden? We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Uh, Tam, okay, so uh, Congressman Comer has made it clear that Republicans seem pretty eager to investigate President Biden, but uh, it sounds a lot different from how they're responding to former President uh, Trump's hundreds of documents at his home in Florida. Of course it is, but consistency is uh, rarely in great supply in Washington. Comer yesterday sent a letter to White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain requesting visitor logs for the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware. But Ian Sams, a White House spokesman, tells me that like every president in modern history, Biden's personal residence is personal and he doesn't have visitor logs. Incidentally, former President Trump never released visitor logs from his private club and home in Florida, or even the White House, for that matter, which has been standard. But to be clear, the White House has given their opponents in Congress plenty of ammunition. They gave incomplete information to the press multiple times, including Thursday and Friday, when President Biden, his counsel, and press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre were pretty unequivocal about one last document being found in Wilmington, only to, on Saturday, put out a new statement saying five more pages of classified materials had been found in that same same spot Thursday night. Okay, now, President Biden is uh, speaking at the National Action Network's uh, annual MLK Day breakfast event in D.C. today. Any chance he uh, addresses the documents controversy? Oh, not likely. Uh, yesterday, he went to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, for Sunday services. That's the church where Dr. King was pastor until his assassination. Senator Raphael Warnock is the pastor there now, and Biden was the first sitting president to deliver remarks from the pulpit there on a Sunday service. I've spoken before parliaments, kings, queens, leaders of the world. I've been doing this for a long time, but this is intimidating. Georgia has become a key swing state, one he would hope to win again if he makes it official and runs for re-election. And I can guarantee you that the will he or won't he drama would have been the focus here. (laughs) But instead, he's facing the second scandal of his presidency after the Afghanistan withdrawal um, for documents that were likely packed up and moved at the end of the Obama presidency six years ago. You know, it seemed as if uh, President Biden ended 2022 on a bit of a high, or at least on an up. Um, what does all this do to a start of 2023? 
you know, he had been riding high coming off the midterms where Democrats performed better than expected, you know, at least by the laws of political gravity. Inflation is slowing. The unemployment situation is still strong. Gas prices have stabilized. And Biden consolidated support among elected Democrats and potential opponents. Even prominent Democrats who had been skeptical running of him running for re-election uh, were saying they would support him. And I haven't seen yet any erosion of that support, but no president wants a special counsel investigation because at the very least, it's going to cast a cloud over him until it's over and you never know when it will end. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tamara, thanks. You're welcome. Let's turn now to journalist and author Chris Whipple. His latest book looks at the Biden White House based on interviews with Chief of Staff Ron Klain and others in the administration. It's titled The Fight of His Life, and it's out tomorrow. Good morning. Good to be with you. So obviously you must know this White House quite well. How significant is this classified documents case for the Biden presidency and the job of leading a country that is so deeply divided? Well, I don't think there's any question about the fact that uh, Joe Biden's headed into his third year with the wind at his back. But obviously, this does not help. This has not been the finest hour for Joe Biden and his team. They've looked evasive with the drip, drip, drip of information Mm -hmm. that keeps coming out. And it's it's surprising because I, I spent two years interviewing almost all of Joe Biden's inner circle for my book. And while there's been plenty of drama from the Afghanistan fiasco to his fraught relationship with the Secret Service, which I report about, to even troubles with Kamala Harris behind closed doors, uh, this White House is usually pretty sure-footed in a crisis, and it's been flat-footed here, I think. And I I think it's important for them to to step up their game, because this goes to the heart of of one of Joe Biden's, um, uh, arguably Joe Biden's greatest asset, which is trust. Mm. And um, I I think they need to really um, get a grip on this. Now, Biden has been intensely critical of Trump's mishandling of classified documents. And obviously, this is a very different case, about 20 documents found that appear to have been disclosed to authorities right away versus hundreds of documents in the Trump case, including many that were withheld from authorities. But it still begs the question, how did Biden and his staff let this slip? Well, look, first of all, this is not even remotely comparable to Trump's shameless flouting of the law and obstruction of uh, the Department of Justice trying to get the documents back. So there's, there's really no comparison here in that respect. But, but look, it's, it's a big political problem. It's hard to know how it happened. I think there really needs to be a, a, a much better process for, for all presidents, I think, and handling of classified documents. But I think this, this really makes it uh, difficult, if not impossible, Uh, for the Department of Justice to prosecute Trump over the Mar-a-Lago documents, because no matter how much anybody says this is all about the facts and the law, it is inarguably a political decision, and that's going to be fraught now. It's hard to imagine Merrick Garland or Jack Smith not wondering at this point if a jury will find Trump's behavior all that egregious when documents keep popping up every other day in Mm. Joe Biden's houses. Now, the president is widely expected to announce his reelection bid in the coming months. Can he afford a scandal like this if he does choose to run again? Well, scandal is a pretty big, scary word to use for this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think this is more of a kerfuffle at this point. I think that 
you know, it, in, in all likelihood, given the facts that we now know that the special counsel will close this out at some point. So he's got to get past it. But I think at the same time, as I said, I think they need to raise their game. It's it's he can't afford to continue to to make inconsistent statements. Um, and I think um, it's going to be a real challenge now because Bob Bauer, the <clears throat> the attorney who is uh, very much in charge, it seems, is a guy who's not going to want the White House to be out there sharing lots of information. Um, and uh, the White House, uh, it's going to be a real balancing act for, for Joe Biden to, uh, to find that balance of sharing enough information without uh, getting into trouble with the investigation. In the few seconds we have left, Republicans are criticizing the White House for what it's calling a lack of transparency on this issue. Is that a fair criticism? Well, it's fair only to the extent that, um, you know, they've, they've had to be very careful given the circumstances. That's journalist and author Chris Whipple. His new book, which looks at the Biden White House, The Fight of His Life, comes out tomorrow. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Selma, Alabama is hosting its annual march to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today. This year's parade comes as the city recovers from a strong tornado that struck it last week. Here's Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Utility crews are still working to restore power to the parts of Selma devastated by Thursday's tornado. Large trees, hundreds of years old, brought lines down when they fell. Selma has experienced hurricane damage in the past, but Mary Margaret Mims says it's nothing like this storm, which launched debris 15,000 feet in the air. We saw it coming. And it was just amazing, you know, how quickly it came upon you and stayed on the ground. Mims is the director of Sturdivant Hall, one of the oldest buildings in Selma that took a direct hit. Sturdivant Hall's structure held. Other homes in this older neighborhood were not as lucky. The families that have been displaced are on the minds of Sadie Moss and Coach Ivory Williams, who are buying supplies at a grocery store. Both are in groups that have volunteered to help those in need. We'll be serving food, we got water, we got tents, and we got different things to help. And we got brothers that are coming from all parts of the state to uh, help with debris and stuff like that. Moss, who runs a local learning center for children, says this storm has changed things, as Selma is usually racially divided. And we still are, to a certain extent. But I do think that this is one thing that has come together to bring us together. One of those dividing moments came in 1965, when protesters in Selma attempted to march to the state capitol across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They were marching for voting rights and were beaten badly by Alabama state troopers. That day became known as Bloody Sunday. Eventually, they made it to Montgomery, led by Martin Luther King Jr. In the beginning, with me, he had a problem. 93-year-old George Sally points to a scar on his forehead where he was beaten by one of those troopers. Sally says he had just returned from serving in the Korean War when he met King. At that time, Sally was full of hate and trained to kill, and King, through nonviolence, was able to rid him of the anger he felt. And it's the problem he had with me getting it out of me. Now Sally comes daily to sit at the foot of the Pettus Bridge to tell his story. He shows me one of his prized possessions, a local ballot in a frame with his name on it. I wanted to fresh it. After the Golden Knight Acapay, running a general election in Dallas County. This week's storm briefly kept Sally from his post, but now he's back again. He says it's important to keep coming 
no matter what happens. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Selma, Alabama. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, onions are being rationed in the Philippines. They're just the latest staple to see ballooning prices. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again. ICABoston.org. A decade ago, after the Sandy Hook school shooting, Shannon Watts could take no more. Don't look away from the gun violence that's killing our children. She founded Moms Demand Action, now one of the largest anti-gun violence groups in the nation. She joins us to talk about why she says she's, quote, proud of living rent-free in the NRA's head. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A mix of snow and rain likely today with little accumulation expected around Boston. We'll have a high near 34 and it'll be pretty windy. Cloudy tonight falling to a low around 30. Tomorrow it gets increasingly cloudy, but it'll be warmer with a high near 44. Right now it's 32 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from PBS with Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist, Tomorrow at 9, 8 central, on PBS. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. In the Philippines, the humble onion has been dubbed the country's new gold. One kilogram, a little over two pounds, is selling for almost $11. The global average is around $1.50. NPR's Julia McCarthy has been talking to Filipinos about how this daily staple has reached such dizzying heights. Eatery owner Armelita Rios is whipping up an eggplant omelet. Pairing knife in hand, she first prepares the ingredient that gives life to much of the Philippine cuisine, the onion. Customers talk into her counter as she hunches over a cutting board, explaining how she's economizing in her cooking because the lowly Philippine onion is now reportedly the most expensive in the world. We used to buy two or three kilos a day, she says. Now we only use half of one because onions are nine to ten dollars a kilo. And even then we just buy the small, cheaper green scallions. Her eatery sits on the perimeter of the cavernous Guadalupe Market in Makati City in Metro Manila. Inside, we pass the meat stalls. 
where the pork being pounded is about half the price of onions. 45-year-old Leah Navarro has come to shop. This widow with five children tells us it would take her two days wages in her job as a maid to buy a kilo of onions. She buys only sparingly, she says, and shrugs off the sky-high prices. The Filipino can adapt all yeah. the situation happen, and they think positive every day. That is a Filipina. They are strong. So how did the price of onions become exorbitant? Well, super typhoons hit the Philippines this past year, destroying crops. Poor planning delayed onion imports. Suspicion has also fallen on alleged bad actors who may have manipulated the market through hoarding and smuggling. But vegetable vendor Joel Morosco says whatever the cause of the surge in price, there's a curious twist to the saga of this unassuming bulb. He says no matter the customer, everyone is opting for the cheapest, smallest variety. Yeah, poor people and uh, rich people here in the Philippines, level, same level. <laughs> You're saying everybody's yeah. the same. Everybody's same. Whether everyone is the same or not, the blame game is on. The agriculture portfolio is one that President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. took for himself, having campaigned last year for a stable food supply. Critics, including patrons at the market who voted for Marcos, say he's too busy as president to be running agriculture and needs to appoint someone else. Leonardo Montemayor chairs the Federation of Free Farmers. People are wondering with all of these declarations about food security and prioritizing agriculture, how come the most basic of commodities are not readily available or if they can be bought? They're priced beyond the reach. Senior economist for ING Bank of Manila, Nicholas Mapa, says that overpriced onions are only the latest in a string of shortages consumers have faced and more are coming. It's looking more like it's one commodity after the other. First it was pork, and then it's fish, and then it's sugar. Now it's onions, and now it looks like it's going to be chicken and eggs. Because of expensive feed and the avian flu, he says. Mapa says getting reasonably priced food on the table is an urgent challenge. Philippine families spent a third of their budget for food. As the country's 8% inflation makes times even leaner, the House and Senate are baying to investigate the onion trade. And the National Ombudsman says he's looking at price manipulation. Amid the clamor, the Marcos government announced plans to import 21 metric tons of onions. Economists say it's the right decision, but come smack dab in the middle of the onion harvest, meaning a surplus of onions will be flooding the market. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. Most waits at the checkout line do not turn into something special. But one man's trip to Walmart inspired incredible kindness and a new friendship. Here's NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Last month, Rory McCarty was trying to buy batteries at his local Walmart, but got stuck in line. While waiting, he was struck by the cashier checking customers out. I kind of looked up and um, I seen this little older guy just there at the register, just grinding. You know, I'm just blown away thinking, man, man, look at this guy. He's got to be in his 80s. McCarty started a conversation with the cashier and found out he was right. Warren Marion, who goes by Butch, is 82. At that point, he'd been working at Walmart part-time for 16 years. He 
He'd spent a lifetime working at General Motors and Honeywell and even had a 10-year stint in the U.S. Navy. I've been working since I've been 11 years old. But some debt made it unlikely for Butch to retire anytime soon. McCarty recalled a TikTok he'd seen of a woman in Arizona who, with just a few followers, raised $50,000 for an 80-year-old stranger who was still working. McCarty had his own TikTok through his extermination company, Bug Boys. He wondered, what if he used his more than 250,000 followers for something like that? With Butch's approval, of course. And then I made a GoFundMe account, and the rest is history. In two days, it raised over $100,000. Both men have been completely overwhelmed with the attention their story has received. On January 4th, McCarty was able to present Butch with a $100,000 check. Butch was able to finally quit after 16 years. This didn't happen because of me. You know, I could have done this for anybody, and I guarantee it wouldn't have caught fire like it did. Butch is going to use the money to pay off some debt, visit his family in Florida, and maybe take a cruise to Cancun with his buddies. Butch and McCarty now have an indelible bond. We're like peas and carrots. As long as he likes to hang out with me, I'm going to be hanging out with him. Out of all the people, I was the one that was chosen. And thank God for that. He's the one that done it. He's the one that led Roy to me. So it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. Jacqueline Diaz. NPR News. The GoFundMe campaign for Butch has raised more than $160,000 as of this morning. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, President Biden spoke at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s former church yesterday, becoming the first sitting president to give a Sunday sermon there. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu slash SEO. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Investigators in Nepal are trying to determine what caused the crash of a Yeti Airlines flight. The twin-engine plane went down yesterday on approach to the airport in Porkhara, killing at least 68 people. Authorities say the plane's cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder have been recovered. The flight originated in Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, and was scheduled to take less than 30 minutes. The plane wreckage is located in a deep gorge. Russian forces are kicking off two weeks of joint military exercises in Belarus. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says the drills are raising concerns that Moscow might use its neighbor to launch a new ground offensive in Ukraine. Belarus's defense ministry said its forces would conduct air and army drills with Russia until the end of the month, including joint exercises to test supply chains and evacuate injured personnel along Belarus's border with Ukraine. Belarus and Russia agreed to the joint force back in October, with Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko insisting it was necessary amid growing threats from Ukraine. Some 9,000 Russian troops have since been deployed to Belarus along with additional weaponry. Ukraine has warned Russia could be planning a repeat of its 
its initial failed attack on the capital Kiev last February, in which Belarus served as a key staging ground for Russian forces. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. An American jailed in Iran for years is urging the White House to make a deal with Tehran to win his release. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, the man is now on a hunger strike to bring attention to his case. Iranian-American businessman Siamak Namazi was not included in the prisoner swap when the Iran nuclear deal went into effect seven years ago. He was also left behind in subsequent deals. In a letter to President Biden released by his lawyer, Namazi says he has the, quote, unenviable title of the longest-held Iranian-American hostage in history. He says his captors enjoy taunting him about that. He plans to be on a hunger strike for the next seven days. Siamak Namazi and his father, Bak, were both convicted in Iran on charges of cooperating with a hostile government, that is, the U.S. Last year, his father was able to leave the country to get medical treatment. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee says he wants to see all documents and communications related to the discovery of classified documents at President Biden's home in Delaware and at his former office in Washington. Republican James Comer of Kentucky is also requesting visitor logs of the president's home in Wilmington since Biden took office. Over the weekend, the White House said another five pages of classified documents had been found. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Steady snowfall is prompting a winter weather advisory along much of Massachusetts' coast. Barnstable and Plymouth counties got the most snow overnight with around three inches sticking to the ground. Kyle Peterson is with the National Weather Service in Boston. He says drivers should be careful today. Take it easy. There could be some slippery spots out there, especially uh, if it's snowing um, or an untreated spot. Peterson says more snow is expected throughout the day. A former Phillips Exeter Academy teacher convicted of sexually assaulting a student is going to prison. Shesney Kaminsky received a minimum 12-year sentence Friday. He taught math at the New Hampshire boarding school for decades. His abuse of an underage female student took place in the mid-2010s. In recent years, a number of former Phillips Exeter students accused the school of not doing enough to prevent sexual misconduct by teachers. Revenue from marijuana sales in the state is expected to soon reach $4 billion, but some retail operators are not excited for the milestone. An increase in wholesale supply and retail competition is driving down the price of pot. That means operators are taking home less of the profits. Store owners tell the Boston Globe they're looking forward to new laws that will decrease fees. UMass Dartmouth's men's basketball coach notched his 700th career win over the weekend. That milestone gives Brian Baptiste the most wins of any active Division III basketball coach in the country. Baptiste started coaching for UMass Dartmouth in the early 1980s. In 1993, his team made the Final Four of the Division III tournament. 
In sports, the Celtics are looking for back-to-back wins against the Hornets today. The Seas beat the Hornets in Charlotte on Saturday. The final score was 122-106. to They'll look to do it again this afternoon at 1 p.m. The Bruins also play at 1 today. They skate with the Philadelphia Flyers at the Garden. And in your forecast, a chance of rain or snow all day today. We'll also have some high winds. Temperatures likely won't rise far past the mid-30s. Tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and warmer, mid-40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 7.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Biden visited Atlanta on Sunday to honor Martin Luther King Jr., on what would have been the civil rights leader's 94th birthday. Biden spoke at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where King was once pastor. The speech drew parallels between King's civil rights mission and Biden's own domestic agenda. NPR's White House correspondent, Franco Ordonez, traveled with the president. President Biden was standing on the dais as the chorus sang. Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor of the church, joked the service may be a bit different than what the president is used to. He is a devout Catholic. This Baptist service might be a little bit rambunctious and animated. But I saw him over there clapping his hands. Warnock said Biden is the only sitting president to deliver the church's sermon on Sunday morning. Mr. President, the choir is going to warm it up for you. That's how we Baptists do. Biden then launched into a sermon, likening King's fight for civil rights to his own fight for his political agenda. And I believe Dr. King's life and legacy show us the way we should pay attention. He repeatedly quoted King's words and used them when speaking about his priorities to defend democracy and revive stalled voting rights legislation. The goal of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Dr. King led, stated it clearly and boldly. And it must be repeated again now, to redeem the soul of America. But Cliff Albright, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, says words are not enough. He said he wants the president to use his executive authority to do more to protect minority voters. We don't just need the speech, we need it to be followed up with actions. But Biden has repeatedly said that Congress needs to take the next step. And he told members of the congregation that they need to stay positive. Like Dr. King was optimistic. Folks, uh, as I said, progress is never easy. But redeeming the soul of the country is absolutely essential. He said they must choose to be believers, to be unafraid, and to always keep the faith. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Atlanta. 
Haiti is a country in crisis, and now it has lost its last few democratically elected government officials. The country's 10 remaining senators left office last week after their terms expired. What remains of the government is struggling to maintain security as gangs overrun the country. Haiti's de facto leader, Prime Minister Ariel Henry, has yet to make good on repeated pledges to hold general elections. To understand how the nation got to this point, we spoke with Cecile Oxilion. She's the president of the Haitian Studies Association and a professor of Haitian studies who's based in Atlanta. She says since President Jovenel Moise was assassinated in 2021, Haiti has been without legitimate leadership. The country is being run illegally. You have a de facto prime minister and you don't have any elected officials. You're in a country that is that is lawless, like the lawlessness that is happening at all levels, both in terms of the gang and in terms of the government itself. I mean, the gang situation doesn't help, but how can you have elections when after the president was killed? To this day, there's nothing tangible. We don't have any real investigation that say, this is how it happened. This is how we are going to move forward. Cecile, I know that you were born in Haiti. You came to the United States when you were about 11 years old. I mean, what you described sounds, I mean, it just sounds like there's so much uncertainty that it would just shake me. If, if, if I was in your situation, knowing that my, my country, the, the country I was born in, is in such an unstable spot. I mean, how does, how does that feel to know that, that Haiti is, is in this predicament? I mean, the country is essentially in a civil war, and that breaks my heart because this is not the Haiti I grew up in. And make no mistakes, I grew up under dictatorship. So I'm not idealizing the Haiti I grew up under. But this is the first time I think we have seen this level of lawlessness, this level of gang violence, where people's lives do not matter. And the outside world is just looking at it as if it's on television, as if it's a bad movie. Do you still have family and friends in Haiti? Uh, and if so, do you do you talk to them often? What what are they saying to you? Yeah, I mean, I I have um I still have family, friends, colleagues, and I have um a close family member who was um kidnapped about three weeks ago, and luckily they were let go because it was my understanding of how the kidnapping happened is it was a group of people who was teaching at a school, at a missionary school in Port-au-Prince, and they were in a bus and the, the gangs took the bus and just kept everyone. There were about 14 of them and demanded ransom and they let them go after the school pay the ransom. And this has become an everyday reality. I mean, you, you mentioned how it feels like the world's just watching this, like some kind of TV show. Do you feel that the U.S. has not done enough or, uh, you know, has the U.S. failed Haiti? Yes, the U.S. has continuously failed Haiti. From the time it occupied Haiti in 1915 until today. For me, I get frustrated that there is this idea that Haitians are just sitting in Haiti waiting for the blanc, meaning the white person or the foreigner, to come and save us, that we don't want to do anything. We're just waiting. 
and things are not that simple. Considering this lack of trust that I'm sure exists in Haiti from any outside nation trying to help or offering help, would the country be okay with the United States coming in and, and, and offering that assistance? I mean, what kind of conditions would, would make you feel better about that? I mean, I think for one thing, the Haitian diaspora in the U.S. have to be involved. Because when you go as the U.S., you go and you're not talking to people. You don't know the culture. You don't know the people. You don't know the everyday life. Who is it that the U.S. is sending to be part of this conversation? So to me, you have to start there. I think people in Haiti are open to aid but they don't want another occupation. That is Cecile Auxilian, a scholar of Haitian studies and a board member of the Haitian Studies Association. Cecile, thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, Russia has gathered what some believe to be hundreds of off-book ships to transport its oil. The ships are registered to offshore companies and countries willing to allow them to circumvent international sanctions. And in our next hour, storms continue to hit Florida, causing floods and deaths, but also lessening that state's drought. There's a chance of rain or snow all day today. Throw in some gusty winds and it'll be pretty messy. No accumulation is expected around Boston, but steady snowfall is prompting a winter weather advisory along the coast. Temperatures will top out in the mid-30s, low 30s tonight, tomorrow cloudy and warmer in the mid-40s. Right now it's 31 degrees in Boston at 744. WBUR supporters include AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Now in business news, the Edaville family theme park in Carver is changing its concept. Its owners say they want to build over 300 apartments on part of the property. It would also operate the park as a Christmas market, which would mean it would only be open in November and December. Boston-based architect Emily Grandstaff Rice is the new president of the American Institute of Architects. She'll be the trade group's 99th president. Grandstaff Rice says she wants to focus on climate resilience and equity during her time as president. Gas prices in Massachusetts are now the same as the national average. AAA says the average price for a gallon of regular is $3.30. That's down two cents in the past week. The average price for diesel is $5.07. That's down just over a nickel. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. A European Union ban on Russian oil is forcing the Kremlin to look elsewhere for customers. Now it's turning to a fleet of tankers willing to bust sanctions. NPR's Jackie Northam reports. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe was by far and away the largest customer for its oil, even bigger than Russia's domestic market. Pipelines, ports, oil fields in West Siberia, everything has been oriented towards selling to Europe. But now it's being forced into a much smaller market, much further away. Craig Kennedy is with the Davis Center for Russian Eurasian Studies at Harvard and spent years in Moscow. He says the Kremlin has been scrambling to come up with ways to get crude to those other markets. But it would take years to build a series of pipelines to Asia and elsewhere. They realized we are going to be stuck with seaborne exports. 80% of our oil has to reach its end customers by sea, and that means tankers. But there was a problem. Russia faces a shortage of tankers willing to transport the oil. Its own fleet isn't big enough. Many Western companies have refused to carry Russian crude since the war in Ukraine. And the U.S. and its allies implemented a plan that would prevent tankers from transporting Russian oil unless it came at or below $60 a barrel for its own brand of crude. Right now, prices are below that. But that could change. So the Kremlin has been building up a network known as a shadow fleet. The Shadow Fleet is a group of ships. It's difficult to estimate exactly how many ships there are, but probably between two and 300. Eric Bruchhausen is with Poten & Partners, a brokerage and consulting firm specializing in energy and maritime transportation. A lot of those ships have been acquired in recent months in anticipation of this EU ban. And the sole purpose of these ships is to move Russian crude just in case it would be illegal for regular owners to do so. Most vessels in the shadow fleets are owned by offshore companies in countries with more lenient shipping rules, like Panama, Liberia, and the Marshall Islands, says Basil Karadzis, CEO of New York-based Karadzis Marine Advisors, a shipping finance advisory firm. He says the owners have limited exposure to U.S. or EU governments or banks, and so their fear of sanctions is limited. And enforcement is difficult. Kuratsis says the risk-reward ratio is favorable to the owners of the shadow fleet tankers. If you can make a 10 to $20 per barrel spread and the vessel holds a million barrels of oil, you can make like you know, $5 $10 million profit per voyage. If you do it five times a year, you can see the economics of that. Kratzis says shadow fleets have long been used by Iran and Venezuela to evade sanctions. He says shadow fleet tankers tend to be old and junky. But since the start of the Ukraine war, they've become highly valuable because of the cargo. In February 2022, a 20-year-old vessel was more or less valued at close to scrap. Now these vessels are worth 40 million apiece. So at the very least, Putin gave to the ship owners a very nice present. Putin will need plenty more shadow fleet tankers if the price of Russian oil rises past $60 a barrel and legitimate ships are then banned from carrying the crude. But with such a highly lucrative business and a small chance of getting caught, more tankers could be lured into joining the shadow fleet. Jackie Northam, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up later this morning on Radio Boston, Martin Luther King Jr. fought for civil rights with nonviolent resistance. And in doing so, while alive, King made many people uncomfortable. Two pastors dive into that piece of his legacy. That's at 11 on Radio Boston. And here on Morning Edition in 20 minutes, Russian officials claim their military has captured the eastern Ukrainian town of Soledad. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Rain and snow today, but with little accumulation around Boston. The National Weather Service is warning, though, of slippery spots on roads, especially along the coast. Low 30s tonight and cloudy, partly overcast tomorrow, and we warm up to the mid-40s. Mostly sunny and upper 40s on Wednesday. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Can director James Cameron equal the success of 2009's Avatar, the highest grossing movie of all time? Well, he's getting close with the film's sequel, Avatar, The Way of Water. I know one thing. Wherever we go, this family is our fortress. The film released just last month is already number seven on the list of all-time highest-grossing films worldwide. Cameron says sequels are hard because they have to strike a delicate balance. The audience wants some degree of familiarity. They want to be grounded in that which they liked from the first film. And some sequels change too much. Uh, the, The trick is to find ways to make it pleasantly surprising, unexpected. You know, I feel like I was able to do that with a completely unexpected direction on Terminator 2, on Judgment Day, where we basically made the baddest badass killer bad guy into the good guy. Come with me if you want to live. Now that's a swerve that could have thrown people off. You know, in this film, it's a natural progression out of, okay, two people fall in love. And then so we cut to them 15 years later and they've got a pack of kids. Now, what does that do to them as warriors, as kind of mythopoetic heroes? And one of the things about the Sully family in Avatar, The Way of Water, is that they've got kids from all kinds of different ways of having a family. It's not like a standard family. It's defining family quite broadly. So there's an adopted daughter. There's a, a kid who's an orphan who would desperately love to be a Sully if he could. You know, so we see family kind of defined in different terms. And that, that's a theme that will continue across the, the subsequent films. So for sure, the sequels are coming, right? I know, I know there was there was some, you know, wondering, okay, if the movie does well, that it's gonna be, it's gonna have a three, four, and a five for sure. I think so. Look, I mean, what do you a mean you think so, James? On Come on. The shooting scripts are all written. We've already fully captured and fully photographed 
movie three. So it's essentially in post-production. We've done the first act of movie four, and all we have to do is, you know, kind of add water, so to speak. Now, is it true that five, the Navi, go to Earth? I heard I might have heard somewhere that uh, that is a possibility for. Don't the you? Fifth. Don't you want to know? I do. If you could, you <laughs> could tell me now, that would be great. I could, but you're not. <laughs> okay, we'll wait. I'll let you finish that sentence for yourself. We'll and why? Let me ask you: Why is the theme? Because you know, it's just watching the the first film and this film. You know, it's, it's civilizations using technology to do really bad things. Uh, that that seems to be common, not just in in Avatar, but Terminator, Aliens. Why is that important to you? Why why is that theme important to you? Well, look, it's just me analyzing through a science fiction lens, and even through a historical lens with Titanic. It's very similar thematically. Is how technology changes us, how it fails us, how we use it cleverly. You know, I see technology as a double-edged sword that, that, you know, threatens our destruction, but also is going to be part of our deliverance if we could figure out the right balance. It's all about balance. When it comes to the way you use technology in your filmmaking, have uh, do you still have balance from maybe when you were a younger filmmaker, or is that something that has changed you completely? Oh, I think balance is critical directorially, you know, artistically. I certainly am fully capable of geeking out and going the ra down the rabbit hole of the tech, yeah. but I don't think that manifests in the finished film itself. I mean, if you look at the finished film, The Way of Water, it's actually celebrating quite a simple lifestyle that's very close to nature. The movie is succeeding, not based on its technology. In fact, I've kind of even embargoed talking about the behind the scenes tech on the film because I think that people care about the characters. You know, the why is an interesting question. It's like, why do we jump through all these hoops of performance capture and the things that we need to do to bring these characters to life? And the answer is because we couldn't do it any other way. These characters, as you see them, could not be done with makeup. So you're not gonna get that, that big-eyed, open, empathetic kind of feeling with makeup. Could you ever imagine yourself directing a film with, say, just a handful of actors, one set, no added anything, like a, like a remake of 12 Angry Men? Could you ever see yourself doing that? I do it on every movie I make. I have intimate scenes where I'm hand-holding the camera, and uh, I make sure that those scenes exist in every film that I do. But I would never limit myself to that. I mean, I can do that. I could do that all day long. Making a film <laughs> like that end-to-end -end, would bore the crap out of me. Really? Yeah. Now, you know, I've always, my whole life, I've always insisted on seeing movies in a theater. The bigger the screen, the better. And I, th I think a lot of people prefer that. But I got to admit, uh, James, that since the pandemic, I've softened that strict stance. I know. Everybody has. By necessity. Well, yeah, health necessity, but also I didn't want to keep missing movies. I felt like I was just getting behind. I'd, I'd watch movies all the time. Me and my wife would go out as to as many movies as we could every single month. If years from now someone told you that for whatever reason they watched The Way of Water, but only on their phone or laptop, what would you say to them? How would that make you feel? I would say, okay, you've seen sort of half the movie. If you watch it at home on a reasonably large flat screen TV with a decent sound system and you sit close enough, not way across the room, you're gonna have a good experience. And I think when you start looking at something on a phone, you're sort of missing the point. Going to a movie theater is less about the size of the screen and the, and the perfection of the sound system. And it's more about a decision hmm. to not multitask.
I think that's the critical part that people are missing. You're making a deal between yourself and a piece of art to give it your full attention. And you don't when you're at home. People don't cry as much when they watch a movie at home as they will in a movie theater. You don't have the depth of emotion. If we can only make sure yeah, that people leave their phones <laughs> at the theater door, right? That would be ideal for me. Well, look, we, we accept that annoyance factor, though. You, even now, with the new annoyances, the person next to you munching endlessly and rustling all their wrappers and their popcorn and everything, the person in front of you that's too tall. We accept all that because what we're doing is, once again, we're, we're, we're signing a contract with ourselves to, to give our full commitment, to be fully present. That's director James Cameron. His film is Avatar, The Way of Water. James, thanks for the time. Hey, it was great talking to you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faudel. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. President Biden marked King's 94th birthday by becoming the first sitting president to give a Sunday sermon at his former church in Atlanta. It's Monday, January 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, dozens of Texas inmates are on a hunger strike to protest the use of solitary confinement. Some have been in isolation for more than a decade. I think people understand that something needs to change. What they don't really know is how do we go about facilitating those changes. Also this hour, far-right Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is revamping her image, beginning with support for Kevin McCarthy. The Republicans are the party of never, and it's always never when they don't like somebody. And that's how we failed. That's how we failed the country. And how the barrage of storms are causing flooding and deaths in California is affecting that state's drought. Rain and snow today in the 30s. It's 6.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee is asking the White House to turn over visitor logs for President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. Republican James Comer of Kentucky sent a letter to the administration requesting the records. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the White House says it doesn't have visitor logs for Biden's private residence. The request for visitor logs comes after the revelation over the weekend that President Biden's lawyers had found five more pages of classified material in the same spot in his Wilmington home where they had earlier found a single document. Comer wants records of who has come and gone from the House since Biden took office. But White House spokesman Ian Sams tells NPR such visitor logs don't exist. He said that like every president in decades of modern history, Biden's personal residence is personal. 
personal. Former President Trump never released visitor logs for his private club and home in Florida. He also never allowed the release of White House visitor logs when he was in office. A norm Biden restored. Tamara Keith, NPR News. More rain and mountain snows are expected today across much of California. Nicole Nixon with Cap Radio reports atmospheric rivers continue to move moisture into the state from the Pacific Ocean. More than 15,000 Californians were under evacuation orders last night as flooding continued in the state's swollen rivers. Governor Gavin Newsom says more people have lost their lives in the floods than have died in the last two years of wildfires. Forecasters with the National Weather Service say one more weak storm will move through areas of Northern California Wednesday. After that, parts of the state are looking at their first stretch of back-to-back days with no precipitation since the new year. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. The family of a black man who died after being tased by police officers in Los Angeles says a second autopsy will be performed. Lakshmi Sarah of member station KQED reports the victim was a cousin of one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. 31-year-old Keenan Anderson died after police repeatedly tased him over 90 seconds as he begged for help, according to body cam footage of the January 3rd encounter. Carl Douglas, the lawyer representing the family, says, We believe the decision to tase him six different times was wrongful, was negligent, and is a substantial factor in causing Mr. Anderson's death. Douglas said they expect to file a claim for damages on behalf of Anderson's five-year-old son with the city of Los Angeles. For NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Sarah. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today. Markets in China closed higher, while shares in Japan fell. This is NPR News. Officials in central Nepal appear to have called off the rescue operation at the site of a plane crash on Sunday. Authorities say emergency crews have reportedly recovered the bodies of all but two passengers who were on board. Italy's most wanted mafia boss, Matteo Messina Denaro, was arrested today after three decades on the run. NPR Silvio Poggioli reports police arrested him at a hospital in Sicily. Italian TV showed images of a man wearing a white cap and dark glasses sitting in a police vehicle between two officers. Carabinieri Commander Pasquale Angelo Santo issued a statement. Today, he said, Sicilian Carabinieri arrested the fugitive Matteo Messina Denaro inside a private hospital where he had gone for treatment. The boss of the Sicilian Cosa Nostra mob has been sentenced in absentia to life imprisonment for the 1992 murders of two anti-mafia prosecutors. He got another life sentence for his role in the 1993 bombings in Florence, Rome and Milan that killed 10 people. Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni hailed the arrest as a great victory. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. Tributes are pouring in today for a former female lawmaker in Afghanistan who was shot and killed by gunmen in her home in Kabul on Sunday. Officials say this is the first time that a lawmaker from the previous administration was killed in the city since the Taliban takeover. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy.
Melrose teachers will be in their classrooms tomorrow morning when school resumes after the long holiday weekend. Their union and the school committee reached a tentative three-year contract on Saturday. The agreement came just a day after teachers voted to strike. WBUR's Paul Kinnearney reports teachers got what they wanted. They will get a 10% raise over three years and get more time to prepare their lessons. Melrose Education Association President Lisa Donovan says the agreement meets the needs of teachers, students, families, and the community. School Committee Chair Margaret Driscoll says the contract shows the city's dedication to the teachers. Union members still need to vote to finalize the contract. Hundreds of Massachusetts residents in need of long-term psychiatric care are stuck in hospitals. That's according to a new report from an advocacy group called the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. The report finds that as of November, more than 320 people in the state were stuck waiting to be connected to long-term services. Report authors say the state Department of Mental Health should expand its capacity to deliver care. Boston's Museum of Fine Arts is having a free open house today for Massachusetts residents. The event is in celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Curator Kristen Hoskins says this is a way to honor the civil rights leader's legacy of enacting social change. She hopes that this stimulates people to think more about what King stood for. Reflect on Dr. King's legacy. I hope they take a moment to think about what art can do to fuel the mind and find some inspiration in their daily work. And then also to acknowledge the greater influence that the Kings had on the city of Boston. Hoskins says Hank Willis Thomas, the man who designed the Embrace Memorial on Boston Common, will be at the museum today. And speaking of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, keep in mind that some services in Boston may be closed in observance of that holiday. City and government buildings are closed for the day, and some neighborhoods are pushing back their trash pickup. The T's subway and buses are running on a Saturday schedule. If you choose to drive, street parking around the city is free for the day. It's 8.08. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Celtics are still in North Carolina. The team is looking for its second straight win against the Hornets. Tip-off is at 1 p.m. The Bruins are skating at home this afternoon. The Bees will take on the Philadelphia Flyers at 1. A chance of rain and snow today around the Boston area. There isn't expected to be much accumulation, but do watch out for slippery spots on roads across the region. We'll have a high in the mid-30s. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 30. Tomorrow, increasingly overcast, but we warm up to near 45. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 8.08. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Over the weekend, deadly Russian airstrikes hit multiple cities in Ukraine. The air attacks come as fierce fighting rages in the eastern Donetsk region, where Russia claims to have captured the salt mining town of Solodar, a claim that Ukrainian officials dispute. To break down Russia's military goals, we have Sergei Ranchenko, a professor of Russian history at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He joins us from Davos, Switzerland. Good morning. Morning to you. So let's first discuss the significance of Solidar. What makes this town strategically important to Russia's military goals? 
Well, it is, it is important because it would allow the Russians to capture another town that has been uh, the center of fighting recently, the town of Bakhmut. But yeah. it, it's more important, I think, symbolically than it is strategically, because this is the town where the forces of Wagner, headed by uh, Putin's so-called chef, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, are trying to prove that they're actually capable of taking back uh, or taking territory from the Ukrainians. So it is, it, it is really, you know, the, the capture of this town is, is a question of, of a struggle for power within the Russian military mm. establishment and the Russian political elites more than even uh, more than the strategic aspect of it. And it's exposed some rifts, right? I mean, this possible capture has shown that the head of the Wagner group has actually said, well, we're not getting the credit we deserve. Well, he has really come to the fore, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin has, in recent months. Before that, he was really in the shadow. You know, Wagner was pursuing military activities in Africa and in Syria. And suddenly they're playing this role in Ukraine where the Russian military are suffering defeats. And it seems to be that it's like, uh, you know, for, for Prigozhin, it's part of his political campaign to establish himself, to position himself for the inevitable power struggle that will follow Putin's exit whenever this happens. Now, what does that rift mean militarily then? I mean, President Putin has just appointed a new top general to run Russia's armed forces and the war in Ukraine. Why a new commander now? Is this part of that struggle? Well, a new commander, I think, is is needed ahead of big operations that the Russians are intending to carry out in Ukraine come spring. It's clear that both Ukrainians and Russians are planning uh, large-scale offensive operations, and this is a part of the planning process, I think. On the other hand, it is also an effort to move the chairs around uh, as, as Putin place the power game, which involves, of course, the military on the one side, Prigozhin and Wagner on the other side, and so on and so forth. I don't think it is a particularly significant move, uh, but it is part of that general uh, atmosphere of political struggle at the Kremlin and also Putin's preparation for the offensive operations. Will the Russian military be able to solve its problems that it's seen in Ukraine, training, equipping its forces? I mean, this it originally was supposed to be a short war, according to Putin. And here we are a year in almost. Uh, Russia is facing grave problems, in particular with ammunition as it continues its brutal war against Ukraine. Putin has declared mobilization and brought in 300,000 recruits. And it seems that this mobilization will continue if these recruits are used up, so to speak, in the fighting. Um, he is determined to continue the war. He is determined to bring in as many people as, as he can afford. And he can afford many because Russia is a big country. And of course, there's also the big question of whether Russian military industry is going to be able to catch up with the requirements of war. Uh, and the verdict is still out on this. Uh, the verdict is still out. The Russians are bringing weapons uh, and ammunition uh, from, from other countries, potentially from Iran and North Korea. Uh, we'll see if those efforts uh, succeed. Uh, but it is very important at this stage to continue supporting the Ukrainian effort for our part to make sure that we can counter this Russian uh, offensive. That's Sergei Rodchenko of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. California continues to get drenched by storms. At least 19 people have been killed, and more rain is forecast this week. Grounds are overwhelmed. What may appear less significant in terms of the rainfall may actually be more significant in terms of the impacts on the ground and the flooding. 
That was Governor Gavin Newsom speaking after surveying storm damage in Central California. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Southern California. Uh, Nathan, you're in Ventura. That's about an hour northwest of L.A. What's the situation there now? Yeah, we got absolutely dumped on here last night. Uh, I drove up the coast a bit before sunset and saw quite a bit of localized flooding in low areas, cars, hydroplaning on the road. The beaches up and down the coast here are just trashed with, you know, full trees washed up on the shores or drifting in the waves. I saw that California's Geological Survey says they've now documented more than 400 landslides since the start of the new year. Uh, President Biden declared a major disaster declaration for the state over the weekend, uh, which are, should free up some federal dollars, which should help with the, what's going to be a pretty major cleanup. So cleanup, is that the phase that uh, California's in now? Yeah, we're supposed to get more rain today up and down the state, but but yes. You know, I talked to Chris Outler, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service yesterday, and, and here's how he put it. My main message, I guess, would just be hang on a little longer. You know, we got this kind of last storm system here and maybe a little one midweek, but uh, we're just about to the end of the tunnel with a more extended dry period on the way as we get into the later portion of the week. And that last storm system he mentioned is supposed to be more of a typical winter storm, not a drenching atmospheric river. These bands of high-level moisture, which have been moving water from the Pacific to the coast, like we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so hopefully that'll allow swollen rivers to come back down a bit and for things to finally normalize. So Nathan, anytime there's a lot of rain in California, everyone always wonders if it's making a dent in the drought. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> It is. So all of this rain has made a serious dent. You know, it's filled some reservoirs. It's built this massive snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. A month ago, more than a third of California was in what the uh, U.S. drought monitor was calling extreme drought. As of now, it's less than 1%. That being said, it's important to remember that there's still a lot of winter left. So there's still a chance we could get below average precipitation through the rest of the rainy season. Also, bear in mind, the drought is much larger than just California. We're talking about a a multi-decade mega drought, the driest period of at least 1,200 years across Western North America. And people have been depleting groundwater reservoirs, so it'll take more than a series of extreme storms uh, like we've been seeing for us to dig out. And there's still a longer-term question of how best to support tens of millions of people living in a semi-arid landscape as the climate warms. All right, so speaking of climate change then, do we see its fingerprints on these storms? Yeah, we're seeing the kinds of extreme weather whiplash that climate scientists have been warning about for a while. Extreme heat, drought, extreme rain. Climate change is really expected to take normal phenomena like these atmospheric rivers, like the drought, and turn up the dial, making them more intense than before. So to answer your question directly, uh, no, it's still too early to say whether this flooding and rain is a result of human-caused climate change, but we can say that this is the type of event that's going to become more common as the world continues to warm. That's NPR's Nathan Rott in Ventura, California. Stay dry, Nate. Hey, thank you. You too. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is no stranger to controversy with her extremist far-right rhetoric and ties to former President Donald Trump. But the new year and the new Congress have placed her in the spotlight for a different reason, her vocal support for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler has more on Greene's new approach to Washington. When the first day of Congress adjourned and lawmakers went spilling into the halls of the Capitol without being sworn in, most Republicans were, understandably, frustrated. It's not a popularity contest. It's not who we like and who we don't like. Because you want to know something? That is the failure of Republicans. About 90 percent of the GOP conference voted for Kevin McCarthy three times that day, so that sentiment wasn't a surprise. But the speaker was. 
Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. The Republicans are the party of never, and it's always never when they don't like somebody. And that's how we failed. That's how we failed the country. Green is one of the most prolific fundraisers and attention getters in the Republican Party, and not always for good reasons. Democrats stripped her of committee assignments for a cornucopia of comments that dabbled in degrees of conspiracy theories, anti-Semitism, and other incendiary rhetoric that she has occasionally apologized for. So I just wanted to come here today and, and say that I'm truly sorry for offending people with remarks about the Holocaust. There's no comparison. After Republicans regained control of the chamber by the narrowest of margins in November, Green's unwavering support for Speaker McCarthy, alongside her unflinching commitment to ultra-conservative policies, places her into a new nexus of power. Here's Green on Fox News. I have the support of the base, and I keep telling everyone here in Washington, this is what the American people want. And it was easy for me to get on board with this agenda because I'd see the conference come around the same things. She's got the year of McCarthy. She's got the year of the former president, who is still arguably the leader of the party. You know, she has a, a lot of voters nationwide who like her. That's Jim Hobart, a Republican pollster and partner at Public Opinion Strategies. He says there's a bit of a power vacuum in the Republican Party right now, especially in the House, where it only takes a few people within the ranks to make or break legislation. John Mason Long is a Georgia-based Republican strategist who says it's smart for Green to choose the make option by supporting McCarthy, given the current dynamics where the House needs the entire conference on the same page. What she knows she has to do is be an effective legislator, and that's why she's got a great relationship with Speaker McCarthy, and then she's got a great relationship with the other side of the party, that more Freedom Caucus side of the party. So what's changed from the last Congress to this one? Is it the Republican Party, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or a little bit of both? Here's Jim Hobart again. I don't know necessarily if Marjorie Taylor Greene has changed. She's just changed the tone of the way she talks about things. She's changed who she is talking to, and she's changed the focus in those conversations. It's possible that Greene's rise in power and prominence are the beginnings of a greater shift within the party, as some seek to merge the pro-Trump fervor with actual governing. Or it could merely be a byproduct of this particular moment in this particular majority in this particular Congress. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, officials in Indiana are describing the stabbing of an Indiana University student as racially motivated, renewing concerns about increased hate crimes against Asians. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. I'm Scott Tong. What happens when an artist goes undercover and mingles with international arms dealers? I imagine discreet deals in shadowy rooms. Instead, it's a huge, glitzy trade show. Weapons are basically showcased as glamorous products. We hear about the secret world of weapons industry trade shows. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, 
Boston's NPR news station. A mix of snow and rain likely today, and the snow was coming down pretty steadily around Boston, but the National Weather Service still says little accumulation is expected. We'll have a high near 34, and it'll be pretty windy. Cloudy tonight, falling to a low around 30. Tomorrow gets increasingly cloudy, but it'll be warmer with a high near 44. Right now it's 31 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from PBS with Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist, tomorrow at 9, 8 central on PBS. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from Progressive Insurance, with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. A brutal attack on a college student is causing fear and outrage among Indiana University's Asian-American community. An 18-year-old was stabbed multiple times near a bus stop last Wednesday. The university calls it an act of anti-Asian hate. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. It was broad daylight when an 18-year-old Indiana University student was stabbed multiple times in the head with a knife. She was getting off a city bus less than a mile away from campus. University sophomore Caitlin Wu says she trembled when she heard the news because she often passes by that bus route. The crazy thing about this crime, too, is that it happened at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, um, which is when a lot of students' classes are just getting out. Bloomington police say the attack was unprovoked. The suspect made it clear that race was a factor. Billy Davis, who's a 56-year-old white woman, told police she stabbed the victim because the student was, quote, Chinese, unquote. And in her words, it would be one less person to blow up the country. She faces multiple charges, including attempted murder. A local prosecutor says Davis is not charged with a hate crime because Indiana is one of the few states that lacks such a law. But this isn't the first time Indiana's Asian community has been threatened. In 2016, another student, Yu Zhang, was attacked with a hatchet by a man who wanted to bring about an ethnic cleansing in the state. And in 1999, Wan Jun Yoon was shot to death near a church by a self-proclaimed white supremacist. Attacks like these weigh heavily on the mind of Caitlin Wu and her friends. It's a really scary reminder for me that I just need to be a lot more vigilant of myself and where I am whenever I'm taking the bus or just walking out into the Bloomington community. Wu says she and her Asian-American friends have been checking in more regularly with one another since the attack. They've also begun offering car rides so they don't have to travel alone. Juliana Kim, NPR News. If you sit all day at a computer or spend hours on the sofa watching TV, your health can take a hit. Research shows sitting for long periods each day increases the risk of heart disease and early death. But what is the least amount of movement needed to offset the risks of excessive sitting? Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey with the answers from researchers. If you happen to be behind the wheel right now and plan to be at your computer or on screens all day, you may want to make an adjustment. 
As sedentary time has increased to about eight hours a day on average, so too has the evidence that it's really bad for us. Here's Keith Diaz of Columbia University Medical Center. People who sit for hours on end develop chronic diseases, including diabetes, heart disease, dementia, and several types of cancer at much higher rates than people who move throughout their day. And they're at a much greater risk for dying early. So how much or how little movement is needed to offset these risks? To figure this out, Diaz and his colleagues recruited a whole bunch of middle-aged and older adults to come to their lab and emulate a typical workday. They'd come in and sit for eight hours, and we would use a continuous glucose monitor, which is a small device that just measures your glucose levels or blood sugar levels automatically every 15 minutes. And then we measured their blood pressure every half hour. During the day, participants took walking breaks on a treadmill of varying lengths and frequency. Short walks once per hour helped control blood pressure. And when they upped it to twice an hour, they saw some impressive results. We found that a five-minute walk every half hour was able to offset a lot of the harms from sitting. And we were really struck by what was surprising was just how powerful the effects were. When you move for five minutes every half hour, the blood sugar spike after a meal was reduced by almost 60%. He wasn't the only one struck by this reduction. Robert Salas is a family medicine doctor at Kaiser Permanente. He says it's well known that exercise can help control blood sugar. But what's new here is how beneficial frequent short bouts of movement can be. It is surprising to me as a physician. I have never seen that kind of a drop in blood sugar, you know, other than with medication. At a time when more than one out of every three adults in the U.S. has prediabetes and nearly half have high blood pressure, which both increase the risk of heart disease, Dr. Silas says many, many people could benefit from walking breaks. I think it's easier to find small amounts of time through the day to get some exercise. Per the CDC, Americans are encouraged to get 150 minutes of moderate-intensity physical activity each week, or about 30 minutes a day, five days a week. But Dr. Salas says this study adds to the evidence that breaking it into smaller chunks can work, too. Small bouts of exercise count the same as doing 30 minutes extended. So this study really fits with that. The pace that the participants in the study walked, which was less than two miles an hour, was likely too leisurely to count as moderate intensity for most people. But exercise researcher Loretta DiPietro, who's a professor at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University, says there are simple ways to increase the intensity. Step up the pace. Add some stairs in there. Frequent walking breaks alone may not be enough to lose weight or get into top aerobic fitness, but DiPietro says they can help fend off disease. This is a wonderful way to improve your metabolic profile. Just, you know, stop sitting around all day. The human body was not designed to sit for eight hours at a time. And there's one more benefit of short, frequent walks worth noting, says Kathleen Jans, a health promotion researcher at the University of Iowa. The participants in the study felt better. People felt less fatigued. People were in a better mood because they took those breaks. So she says employers may want to take note, especially at a time when companies are trying to figure out how to retain their workers. I also think this is a way of providing an improvement in the workplace that, again, seems to me can be win-win. It could make us happier and healthier. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble. 
maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, inmates in Texas are on a hunger strike to protest the use of solitary confinement, sometimes for periods as long as 10 years. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden will mark today's holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by speaking to a civil rights organization in Washington. The president is scheduled to address the National Action Network, founded by the Reverend Al Sharpton. In Selma, Alabama, the city plans to pause its storm cleanup efforts to honor Dr. King. A tornado hit Selma last week, leaving widespread damage. Kyle Gassett with Troy Public Radio has more. In 1965, King played a pivotal role in the march for voting rights from Selma to Montgomery. King eventually led the march to the Capitol after protesters had been beaten by Alabama state troopers on what was later known as Bloody Sunday. Sadie Moss hopes that storm recovery brings people together in the same way King's message of nonviolence did. Because it takes all of us to make Selma come back together again. She's part of a volunteer group providing food and shelter to storm victims. Organizers will hold an annual march in downtown Selma, commemorating King and remembering victims of gun violence. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Selma, Alabama. More rain and mountain snows are expected today in much of California, but the National Weather Service says the state will get a break from the stormy weather later this week. The president has approved a disaster declaration for California. This is NPR News. Beginning this week, U.S. military veterans can access free emergency mental health assistance at any medical facility in the country. NPR's Quill Lawrence says the change is meant to reduce combat veterans' suicides. About 17 veterans per day die by suicide, a rate significantly higher than civilians. Emergency mental health care at VA facilities has been free for years and open even to vets who are not enrolled in VA. This new policy means veterans can also go to a non-VA facility and have all costs of acute mental health care waived or reimbursed by the VA. That includes inpatient or residential care for up to 30 days and outpatient care for up to 90 days. Veterans with anything other than a dishonorable discharge are eligible. Anyone thinking about suicide can reach the new three-digit hotline by calling 988. Veterans can press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Search teams in Nepal say they've recovered the cockpit voice and flight data recorders from the crash of a Yeti Airlines flight. The twin-engine plane went down yesterday on approach to the airport in Pokhara, It killed at least 68 people aboard. Investigators say the plane was less than a minute from landing when it crashed in mild weather and light winds. At least two people are still unaccounted for from that plane. There's no trading today on Wall Street because of the holiday. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
Testing of sports betting software at Massachusetts casinos begins today. The Boston Globe reports it's one step toward the launch of in-person sports wagering in a few weeks. All three casinos in the state are licensed to participate in the program. The state's gaming commission is still reviewing applications for mobile sports betting companies. It expects to vote on those sometime this week. As of right now, mobile sports betting is expected to go into effect sometime in March. The city of Boston is offering parents another incentive to save for their children's futures. The city's Boston Saves program gives Boston Public Schools students in kindergarten through third grade $50 in an account. The money can be used later for college or career training. Through the end of the month, parents who log on to Boston Saves for the first time will get an extra $25 in their child's account. Sasha Abby Vanderzee is the senior program manager for Boston Saves. She says the seed money can make a big difference in student outcomes. It's really, we think, about families talking about college, talking about careers, letting kids know that the parents and guardians and schools and the city is behind them and believes in them and is kind of rooting for them. Parents can get more money by reading with their child or linking their own account with their Boston Saves account. A free concert at Faneuil Hall will honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this afternoon. Performers will play classical music, read their original poetry, and recite parts from Dr. King's speeches. The Museum of African American History organized the event with Boston Youth Symphony Orchestras, or the BYSO. Organizer Nicole Corelia says the event was inspired by a speech by King called What is Your Life's Blueprint? Dr. King was specifically speaking to the youth about their future and celebrating their excellence. We thought that it was a fitting combination to bring together those words plus the music of the musicians of the BYSO. The concert starts at 1 p.m. It's 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Starts January 21st, MRT.org. The Celtics are looking for another win against the Hornets today. They defeated the Hornets in Charlotte on Saturday by 16 points. Tip-off today is at 1 p.m. The Bruins also play today at 1. They take on the Philadelphia Flyers at home at the Garden. In your forecast, a chance of rain or snow all day today. We'll also have some high winds. Temperatures likely won't rise far past the mid-30s. Little accumulation is expected, but there's a weather advisory along the coast for slippery roads. Tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and warmer, mid-40s. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 836. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. 
Dozens of prisoners across Texas are nearly a week into a hunger strike in protest of what they say is inhumane treatment. The inmates, all men, want an end to solitary confinement. Paul Flav of Texas Public Radio has been following the story. He joins us now from San Antonio. Paul, so what do the inmates uh, say about the conditions they're living in? Yeah, the men are in restrictive housing, or what's better known as solitary confinement, where they spend up to 22 hours a day in their cells. In a letter to state legislators, they said staffing shortages have made the situation even worse, where in one prison unit, the Collier unit, men had only had outside recreation a handful of time in three years, and staff struggled to give them access to showers more than once a week. State officials have contested those descriptions, but the strikes are happening in as many as 14 units across the state. And the State Department of Criminal Justice says 72 inmates are participating, though outside organizers say it's more like a 300. Why does the state of Texas say these inmates are being kept in solitary confinement? Uh, They say it's good for staff and other inmates. Many of the men in solitary because they are determined to be a high escape risk. They've got disciplinary violations like assault, but many are members of restricted gangs. So, so some are being separated simply because of their status as gang members. And prison administrators say they use an exhaustive process to determine who should be in solitary, and it's reviewed periodically. A spokesperson said the state's made big strides in reducing the number of inmates in this secure detention, dropping 65% over the past 15 years, from about 9,000 to just over 3,100 3, now. All right, what are the inmates saying? Uh, we've reached out to several, uh, but we have not been able to connect just yet. We've seen letters they've sent to state lawmakers with their demands and concerns. These inmates, especially the gang members, say they shouldn't be punished for just being in a gang. For them to get out of solitary, they must go through a renouncement and denouncement program, which oftentimes means snitching on their inmates, which puts them at risk. Some have been inside for over a decade, say researchers. Uh, Advocate Brittany Robertson has been in touch with some of these inmates. She says they want the state to stop holding people indefinitely this way and to build a step-down program so inmates can reacclimate to the general population before they're released from prison. 80% of them will enter the community, and these are men who have dealt with isolation and can suffer from PTSD, psychosis, and hallucinations, and there's nothing preparing them. Some of them have been in for 20 years. Prison officials say they these are violent and organized gangs and they can't trust them to have free reign to recruit throughout the jails. Then why did uh, Texas institute this sweeping solitary confinement system in the first place? Yeah, Texas had an explosion of prison gangs and violence in the mid 80s and the state, uh, it needed to implement this to secure those uh, those programs. Uh, today, people who follow criminal justice say it, it simply amounts to torture. In fact, I spoke to a number of prison researchers, and Texas is now just one of a handful of states to still use this administrative segregation based on gang membership. California stopped a similar practice nearly a decade ago after a weeks-long hunger strike involving hundreds of inmates and a class action lawsuit. All right, that's Paul Flav, a reporter with Texas Public Radio. Paul, thanks a lot. Thank you. In Boston over the weekend, a massive sculpture dedicated to Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King was unveiled in a downtown park. The sculpture is called The Embrace, and while they're being honored as a couple, Coretta Scott achieved much on her own. Philip Martin of member station GBH reports. Coretta Scott was originally from the Deep South. She had attended Antioch College in Ohio in 1951 before getting a scholarship to the New England Conservatory of Music. It was not an easy thing to get into the conservatory. It isn't now, it wasn't then. And so she was very talented. But Coretta Scott came here psychologically wounded from the bigotry she experienced in Yellow Springs, Ohio. 
Andrea Kalin is the president of the New England Conservatory of Music. She actually ended up leaving Antioch because she confronted some really hideous instances of racism. And so she came to NEC and she started out as a voice major. It was a struggle for her financially and really was pursuing something she loved at some considerable sacrifice. A considerable sacrifice indeed, says Clennon King. No relation to the civil rights leader he writes about as an historian. King says though Coretta Scott was given a full scholarship, she was destitute. I mean, she was scrubbing floors because all she had was that scholarship. She had to eat, she had to get down from Beacon Hill, down to that campus, and she had to study. She paid for room and board working as a maid. Coretta had come to New England with $15 in her purse and a determination to be an opera singer. She was a soprano. So was her classmate, Laverne Weston, one of a handful of black students at the conservatory. They met standing in line. I just happened to turn around and there was this black girl standing next to me. And I said, my name is Laverne Weston. She said, well, my name is, and it took her 15 minutes to say her name. And she told me she was from Ohio. Weston, who goes by Laverne Eagleson today, is now 92. She says she could not tell at the time if Coretta Scott's hesitancy to talk about herself was due to shyness or another reason. I was already 21, and she was older than I, and I think that might have had something to do. Coming up on Morning Edition, car trouble can set off a financial crisis for low-income people. How one small nonprofit in Dallas is trying to help. In your forecast, it's a nice day to stay inside if you can. There's a chance of rain or snow all day today. Throw in some gusty winds. Artist Danny Donovan, who has ADHD, is done with planners. When she feels disorganized, she turns to her anti-planner. Get stuff done when you don't feel like it. Next time, here and now. News stories do not wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, NPR helps you stay connected. Listen live at this station's website or npr.org on your phone. Good morning, I'm Martinez. Sweden is about to cut loose. The government there just proposed an end to a decade-long dancing ban. The current law requires venues to apply for a special permit before even allowing patrons to boogie down on their floor. An end to the ban would let more venues organize dances free of charge. According to Swedish media, citizens find the ban outdated and are more than ready to kick off their Sunday shoes. It's Morning Edition.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm A. Martinez. Car repairs are never convenient. But for people who don't make much money, they can be a major financial hurdle. In Dallas, reporter Kevin Connolly from member station KERA has the story of a small charity fixing the vehicles that could otherwise drive their owners into debt. About a decade ago, Manuel Tellez's truck was in pretty bad shape. It was constantly overheating. It was just one thing after another, and I didn't have any money to get it repaired. So what I did is I went to a payday lender to take out a loan. Tejas borrowed a little over $1,000, he says. With fees and interest, he wound up paying $7,000 back to the company. And making those payments at the payday lending store, he noticed something. A lot of folks would come in to take out payday loans to pay for an auto repair. And that got me to thinking, well, is there anyone or any organization here in North Texas that can help people who need this kind of help? And it turned out, no, there actually isn't. The idea lodged in his head for years. And by 2018, Tellez had formed a new nonprofit. It's called Auto Care Haven. And the mission is simple. Fix vehicles for low-income drivers who can't afford repairs and can't afford to have their car break down. In the Dallas-Fort Worth area, nearly 40% of households report having difficulty paying their usual expenses. That's according to the Census Bureau's latest Household Pulse survey. And more than a third were struggling to pay their rent or mortgage. What we're really providing is hope. Because when your vehicle goes down, especially if you don't have the means if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're usually just kind of, you know, in despair. Auto Care Haven is still a small operation. Tejas runs it on top of his full-time marketing job, and the group has had to turn off its online application portal from time to time because needs overwhelmed capacity. But he's hoping it'll grow in 2023. At a recent pop-up event in South Dallas, mechanics from Auto Care Haven spent the day topping off automotive fluids and giving out advice. You probably have a small oil leak as well because you got oil all over your motor. Mechanic Darren Brown says the charity doesn't do cosmetic work. It also won't rebuild engines or transmissions because it's just too expensive and labor intensive. Other than that, they'll tackle pretty much any issue. AutoCare pays for the parts, pays for the labor, pays for the mechanic. You don't do nothing to sit back and wait for it to be fixed. And having your vehicle fixed for free to get you back on the road? It helps out a whole lot. Last year, Tim Hale's minivan needed a new water pump. It was the latest in a string of mechanical problems on the red nine-year-old Toyota Sienna. It was going to cost me another, like, thousand dollars to get the water pump done. And we just did not have it. Hale is on disability and works part-time. His wife, Tamra, works at a pharmacy, and she also drives for Uber. So having the minivan out of commission meant they were losing income. So when the couple heard about Auto Care Haven from a friend, Hale applied. It was a godsend that they come in and fixed it. 
Fixing a broken water pump doesn't fix a family's financial struggles, but it can help them steer clear of an even bigger setback. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Connolly in Dallas. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, one of the upsides of the tight labor market has been rising wages. But now wage gains are slowing down, which disproportionately impacts workers of color. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's heroic symphony this Thursday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at HandelandHaydn.org. Tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off in recent months. In an industry that once offered endless opportunity, the workforce is now battling over a small number of jobs. Competing with that market is crazy because right now it's like flip, right? The situation flip. And for those on work visas, there is a tight deadline to nab one or leave the country. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. On this day in 1980, the very first legal seafoods location burned to the ground in a fire. The market had operated in Cambridge's Inman Square for 30 years. The tragedy didn't keep the business down for long. Later that month, legal seafoods opened a big new restaurant at the Park Plaza Hotel in downtown Boston. Today, there are more than two dozen legal seafoods locations in the U.S. And in your forecast, rain and snow today with little to no accumulation, but watch out for slippery spots on the road. It'll be windy and in the mid-30s, low 30s tonight and cloudy, partly overcast tomorrow, and we warm up to the mid-40s, mostly sunny and upper 40s on Wednesday. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 851. wages keep up with inflation. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. For Marketplace, I'm Nova Safo and for David Brancaccio. The World Economic Forum kicks off today in Davos, Switzerland. Attendees will be discussing, among other things, how to deal with a cost of living crisis in many parts of the world including here in the U.S., where high inflation has been offset by rising wages. But there are signs those gains are slowing, and disproportionately so, among people of color. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. When average pay started to really pick up around the end of 2021, people with lower-paying jobs saw some of the fastest wage gains. Valerie Wilson is director of the Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy at the Economic Policy Institute. She says since Black workers are more likely to work in low-wage sectors— The fact that there was more growth in that sector suggests that Black workers were beneficiaries of some of that increased wage growth in 2021. But now, Wilson says inflation is outpacing wage growth. As a result, low-wage workers and workers of color are more vulnerable. 
They have less savings, less other sorts of liquid assets that they can draw from to be able to make up the increase in prices. And as the Federal Reserve continues to hike interest rates, it runs the risk of pushing the economy into a recession. Michael Mitchell is director of policy and research at Groundwork Collaborative. If a recession happens, he says workers of color would likely suffer the most. When unemployment goes up, that disproportionately impacts workers of color. We know that these workers are more likely not only lose their jobs, but to see their wages fall or stagnate. And when the economy starts to recover, Mitchell says those workers will have a harder time getting hired and recouping those lost wages. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. And we'll have more on inflation's role in raising the cost of living in a few moments. But first, Mexico has brought into force one of the world's strictest anti-tobacco laws, enacting a total ban on smoking in public places. The step was first approved in 2021 and also includes a ban on tobacco advertising. The BBC's Will Grant reports from Mexico City. Mexico's existing 2008 law, which created smoke-free spaces in bars, restaurants and workplaces, will now be extended to an outright ban in all public spaces in the country. That includes parks, beaches, hotels, offices and restaurants. There will also be a total ban on the advertising, promotion and sponsorship of tobacco products, meaning that cigarettes cannot even be on show inside shops. The Pan-American Health Organization has welcomed the step and applauded the Mexican government for implementing the ban. However, some smokers are dismayed at the draconian nature of the new law. Others have raised questions about the practicalities of enforcing the law. With police corruption so rampant in Mexico, many fear that rather than issuing real fines or punishments for smoking in public, some officers will use it as a pretext for taking bribes. That was the BBC's Will Grant in Mexico City. Let's do the numbers. Well, Wall Street's closed today in observance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. In Asia, markets were mixed. The Shanghai Composite Index rose 1%. The Nikkei fell more than 1%. Investors in Japan are waiting to hear from the country's central bank on Wednesday when a pivotal decision could affect bond yields. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. A global survey of households finds only two in five people believe they'll be better off in the future. The communications firm Edelman does this survey every year, and it found pessimism is highest in some of the world's biggest economies. Inflation is a key reason for this. And in the U.S., higher prices are hitting low-wage workers the hardest. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. 39-year-old Megan Hullinger is a single mom with four kids. The youngest is three, the oldest 13. She lives in the mountains of West Virginia and works for a nonprofit doing outreach for people with addiction or mental health problems. She loves her job, but she says her salary of a little under $25,000 a year is no match for inflation. No, no, not even close. Hullinger's figured out that her everyday expenses, food, rent, gas, cost her $1,864 a month. But the 6.5% inflation rate means those same things now cost her an extra $121 a month. Hullinger did get a raise last year of around 3%, but that's half the inflation rate. So it's, it's effectively, it's a, it's a pay decrease. Hullinger says her landlord wants to raise the rent but her budget is already cut to the bone. 
something small and kind of silly, but I don't buy paper towels anymore. It's just a million little things, you know, you buy generic when you can and, you know, you try to repair things instead of maybe buying when you would just go buy something brand new. Still, inflation actually fell in the second half of last year. The price of some of Hollinger's necessities, including gas, is down. Nicole Smith is chief economist at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. She says falling prices mean workers' real earnings, that is, their pay after you account for inflation, that's actually rising. And that's after 22 consecutive months of declining wages. So what we're seeing is it's moving in the right direction. We're not exactly there yet. Take food prices. They're still up. The cost of eggs soared about 11 percent last month. Hollinger doesn't feel like her paycheck is going any further at the grocery store. Now, even even the cheap things are, are astronomical. I remember when you used to be able to get frozen vegetables, like a little bag of frozen vegetables for a dollar, you know, and now it's like three fifty. But Hollinger may get a break on her food bill later this year. Brad Hirschbein, senior economist at the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research, thinks inflation will keep coming down gradually. He says if that happens and the U.S. is able to avoid a recession. I think it's possible that earnings for workers, even adjusting for inflation, could go into the black, could become positive um, sometime in 2023. So whatever pay raise Hollinger gets this year could finally mean more money in her pocket. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. And about the cost of food, the anti-poverty group Oxfam is calling for a windfall tax on food companies akin to what the European Union has agreed to impose on oil and gas profits. Portugal is the only country so far to implement such a tax. It went into effect at the start of the new year. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. The snow is really coming down across Boston at this hour, but the National Weather Service still says we'll end up with little to no accumulation. They are warning about slippery spots on the road, though, especially along the coast. The snow may turn to rain at points today, and it'll be pretty windy. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. The rain or snow may continue tonight as it falls to the low 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.